0: This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by Physicians for Social Responsibility, the Sam L. Cohen Foundation, and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is the fourth show in our series about what is still hard for white people to get about racism. Today I'll be continuing my conversation with Peggy McIntosh. Last week, she talked about how she came to write her famous essay, White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. Peggy spoke about how hard it was for her conscious mind to identify the advantages that she had in her daily life over her colleagues of color at Wellesley, where she worked. But then she was able to generate a long list of these advantages because they started coming to her one by one in her sleep. I found this so fascinating because there's something about white privilege that can be so hard to get a hold of, and harder still to talk about. It's partly because white people have so little practice talking about it, are so rarely asked to even think about it. Our advantages are so taken for granted, they become invisible. And today's de facto segregation means that many white people have no idea what life is like for people of color. In fact, a recent study shows that three-quarters of whites don't have any non-white friends. I also think it's partly because the whole thing is so uncomfortable, so painful. If we let ourselves know how deeply racist concepts are woven into our thinking. As a psychiatrist, I think the hardest thing for we humans to do is to sit and bear our own pain. We'll do almost anything we can to avoid feeling it. There's so much about racism that is painful, so it makes sense to me that if white people can, we avoid going there. But here's the thing, that choice, the default path for so many of us, comes at a very high price, not only for people of color who suffer with the daily insults and injustices and violence associated with racism, but also for white people who can feel afraid, defensive, guilty, and ashamed when we know that we've lacked the courage to deal with this issue. So that's why I wanted to interview Peggy McIntosh. Her articles are, in a sense, a roadmap for those who are trying to understand what white privilege means and what it means to try and work against a system that perpetuates it. Here's part two of our conversation. So I want to ask about where where this process can get stuck for some people, because it's clear, in, you know, listening to the radio and reading the paper, that that many people— reject some of these ideas about white privilege. And I know that you have kind of created almost like a developmental five-step process for where kind of white people evolve in relationship to these ideas. And I wondered if you could walk me through that.
1: Well, a very natural place to have been educated is in what I call phase one, which is a kind of territory where just the few great people are featured and spotlighted. And the curriculum is all about laws and wars and winners. And um, it's all white. It's all white and male, but one doesn't notice that when one is in that curriculum. And that's what I studied in college and in school. Then the next phase is you begin to think, well, maybe some people were missed in that account of who should sit on the pinnacles. Maybe there are some extraordinary others with a capital O. And then you begin to say, well, maybe maybe Alice Walker or maybe Maya Angelou or maybe Frederick Douglass should be allowed in to the picture of the winners because look what they did for us. W.E.B. Du Bois is another case in point. Or Catherine Ann Porter, let's say. So in phase two, you begin to think, well, I really do know what excellence is, but occasionally people who are outsiders can make it up to the mountaintops, and um, they have to be a fighter to do that, but they might. Now, in phase three, you ask, who made this whole structure of so little room at the so-called top for just a few people, most of whom look alike, and um, and. And so much space at the bottom for the rest of us who are construed as losers. Who invented this whole pyramidal system, the system of pyramids of learning? And uh, in phase three, you begin to get mad and you say it was a matter of unfairness. Now you can study things like sexism and racism and homophobia and classism and nationalism and militarism and regionalism and so on. The problem with phase three is all the stories end up sounding too much alike, I think. They're the oppressors and the oppressed, the victimizers and the victims. Win, lose. Yes, no. Right, wrong. It's too simple. We all have our stories. All the stories count. None of us is only a winner. None of us is only a loser. And that is the territory below phase three. I call it phase four. It's the curriculum of experience. And when we tell our stories of our experiences, we will see that all of us have a combination, I believe, of unearned advantage and unearned disadvantage. So advantage can be born being born to the sex of child that your parents wanted. Advantage can be the kind of hair you have and the kind of body type you have. Advantage can be your first language, whatever it was. The reputation of your the parents that your parents had in their community. You can be born into being lighter skinned as against darker skin. You can be born into having more money than many. You can be born above the line, but everybody is born below the line as well. And I, um, I like to help people balance their views of what has set them back and made life difficult for them with what has put them ahead. Now, if they haven't left an all-white community in Maine, they may not be have a sense of having been given the benefit of the doubt by the wider society. In fact, they may chiefly resent whatever gets projected onto their communities, rural, rural, mostly white communities. But in general, once you start to travel out into the world, you get to see the mix of grief and happiness in most of us. And the And at the same time, the fact that not all have had equal chances in choosing the life they will live.
0: So, Peggy, I can imagine someone saying, but wait, what about a wealthy white man? How does he know about disadvantage?
1: Men are very disadvantaged in many key ways. One of the ways is being taught, boys don't cry. This is a horrible teaching. First of all, it's a lie. Usually the boy is crying or about to cry when he's told boys don't. But on the other hand, he's been told you're a boy, good for you, at a boy. This is very confusing. It's very psychologically destructive to men to be taught through "boys don't cry" to pretend that you are tougher than you actually feel. You, as a psychiatrist, know this. I. I think it's it makes for wreckage in many male uh, psyches. I think it, it's very hard for many 50-year-old men to cry. We Women are allowed to cry, but there are a number of other things that are so acute for the men that I see and work with. If you're very tall, the teachers tend to expect a great deal of you. This can be fine or it can be a burden. You know that, having... Having more expected of you than is expected of the girls can be a burden as well as an asset. Also, in those days when I grew up, men were supposed to make all the moves romantically in the sort of upper-class world I lived in. This is terrible pressure on them. How do you behave? And you know perfectly well the girls are going to gossip about what kind of a date you were and... How you are as a person. Terrible pressures. I think in many ways, the men have it worse than the women today, thanks to the women's liberation efforts of the 60s and 70s. We women often have quite a wide range of things we can choose to do or not do. The men are still more constricted.
0: So I want to come back and hear about the fifth step now, because we've said the fourth step is really looking at the complexity of systems of advantage and disadvantage and seeing how nobody's the good guy, nobody's the bad guy. We all have both inside us.
1: And and I call that the curriculum of experience. Phase four is all of our stories in all their complexity. So phase three, which is the fighting phase, is filled with opinions. Phase four, you tell your own story and you respect it. Now, phase five is a balance between the first three I mentioned. Phase one, top down, white and male. Phase two, exceptional others are admitted. Phase three, a big ruckus gets raised about who created these systems of value so that they're just a few winners and the rest of us are losers economically as well as with regard to respect. Now, Right now, the world of schooling has overstressed phases one, two, and three, the fighting impulse. I think we all have the fighting impulse. It's the biological tendency to make and live in pecking orders. We're all in there. But the other is the equally biological tendency to make and live in symbiotic relation to each other without trying to tear each other apart. Symbiotic meaning interdependent and collaborative. And we all have that too. Certainly childbearing gives it to you. Your aim is not to vanquish your child. Family care has at its heart living in symbiotic relationships so that we all survive. And that's the lateral part of us. It's equally biological. It was a big mistake to project the winning and losing thing onto white men and the caretaking thing onto the rest of us, um, the phase four thing onto the rest of us. Those projections were a big mistake. We all have it in us to live in pecking orders and to live in lateral
0: relationship with other beings without trying to destroy them so phase 5 is holding these two things in balance holding holding both ways of interacting in balance and not not overvaluing one over the other is that what you're saying yes uh-huh and and how does that translate so so in terms of someone's kind of racial awareness like for me as a white person coming to understand my own whiteness If I'm at stage five or working my way there, how would that express itself? Like, what does that mean really concretely to hold these two systems in balance the way you say? You must respect your own white experience. Your white
1: experience, you mustn't be blamed, guilty or ashamed if you came up in a white community. Mm. At the same time, you need to widen your mind realize that your experience isn't the only experience out there, that others have had it quite differently from you, and that you have a lot to learn from them. In the same way that women have a lot that men can learn from us, because we were asked to take care of having and bringing along the human race, and the same is
0: true with regard to race, People of color have been my major teachers. Right. So, so I'm hearing, in a way, the balance you're describing is actually one of of deeply respecting your the complexity of your own story, yes. while deeply respecting the stories of of people who's who are very different from you.
1: Exactly.
0: I love that because I think so often it can feel like um, the way to be less racist as a white person is to is to not respect my own story as a white person or to to, to feel ashamed of it or to put it down. And um, so it feels very it feels very wonderful listening to you to think about a really holding respect for self and other is, is how I hear yes, it.
1: That's right. And so many, it's sad when a, a white woman gets into a group that makes her feel she has no culture, all the culture is held by people of color. This is nonsense. We white people have huge amount of culture. We just weren't raised to say that it was ethno-specific, ethno-particular, ethno, ethno, even (laughs) ethno-peculiar.
0: Right. We thought it was the norm.
1: Yes, exactly. It's all we knew. Yes. Um, And uh, I didn't use the word, the phrase white racism in, in this interview.
0: Okay. You think I shouldn't use it? Well, it's not the way I frame things. Okay, that tell me. Okay, tell me how come you don't use that phrase? White
1: racism is a very accusatory term. It says you whites are racist. Um, white privilege is a factual description of having unearned advantage given to you by society as a whole. So,
0: it's less blaming. Yeah, and less apt to evoke defensiveness, therefore. Exactly. White people are
1: mostly trying to be good, and there's something in most white people that cringes or runs away when the word racism is put at their
0: feet or onto their forehead. That sounds right. That sounds right. So maybe we should reframe this, this series as being about white privilege. Or white experience. Or white experience. Hmm. I'm going to have to think about it.
1: Phase four is the phase. So phase three is all about issues and is very contentious. Phase four is about experience, in which people are the authorities on their own experience. Yes, everybody is the sole authority on their own experience, except maybe a nine-month-old baby <laughs> who doesn't
0: have the words. <laughs> well, here's why. I mean, I wanted. To, I w- I'd like to actually wrestle with you a little bit around this because here's why I've used the phrase white racism. And I I may well choose to change it. I don't know. Um, I just want to think aloud with you. So I think what I've been learning as I've been immersing myself in this topic to, you know, prepare for this series is that I, I, as a white person, feel like I've been steeped in racist images, racist stereotypes, racist expectations. I've been taught to think of myself as superior and in a ways that I'm not even aware of. Yes. And that I I think that it's a no, I mean it in a no fault way. I mean, I, I basically think that it's impossible to be a white person in the United States without having absorbed racist attitudes. It's sort of in the air we breathe. Yes. I quite agree. And so what I'm interested in is calling that out and, and looking at it and talking about it without having to feel ashamed and just saying, this is pretty much universal and and part of working against it is by is by calling it is you know calling it by its true name by naming it and exploring it so that's been my thought well, I'd love to hear your response to that
1: well back in 1977 the sociologist david wellman wrote a book called portraits of white racism and he said in that book white privilege is a system of advantage built on race. So he was a pioneer 77, 70, we're 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 well beyond that now in years. But I have a pragmatic attitude toward language here. If you call white people racists themselves personally, they're likely to stop listening or evade or answer back or, or uh, explode. But if you talk about the learnings we received as racist, remember the learnings, those images, if you talk about those as racist, the textbooks as racist, that's a different thing. You're accusing the the messenger, but not the person who received the message. So I agree with you. I agree with you that we are um, surrounded by imagery and teaching and assumption, and we're filled with assumptions that make us act in ways that are very hard for people of color to stomach. And The same is true for the way we are taught, used to be taught anyway, about gays and lesbians, about people from other countries. Many of us were taught deep anti-Semitism. You can be filled with garbage, but not have it touched to your very soul. There's usually a child in the room who understands that they're basically good at heart. And I think people are basically good at heart. We didn't ask for this stuff to be given to us. So if you read a textbook that has only laws and wars and men in it, that doesn't make you a sexist. Even if you got A's on all your test papers, you really drank it in and absorbed it, it doesn't make you a sexist. The book was sexist. The culture is sexist. And then if we resist it, it's not that we're ever free of it. It'll always be our hard drive. But what I think of is I can choose to install alternative software.
0: Mm-hmm. That is actually what I wanted to ask you, Peggy. So do you feel, I mean, you've been involved so deeply in this work now for so long. Do you feel like even now, sometimes some of those learnings, you know, some of that garbage that was put into you through your education and socialization is still there for you? Some of that kind of sense of superiority, do you still find it in yourself? Of course. That's the hard drive. I'll
1: never be rid of it. Yeah. But I can choose to... Install alternative software thanks to partly the tutelage of men and women of color who have been my major teachers. So, just when I get most impatient, just when I'm most impatient, I'm likely to rethink. I remember once. I was very impatient when 17 women, white women in a row, apologized as we took the microphone at a conference. And we started with apologies, apologies, like, I have just one thing to say. And I don't know what I'm talking about, but here goes. Or you may not agree with this, but. And at first, I was angry. This is my hard drive. Women we will never make it into the boardrooms of the United States if we stumble all over ourselves with these apologies. We should stand at the podium and deliver the goods. But then, because I work at a center for research on women, I said, wait, um, we put women at the center and try to think, think from their points of view. And then I thought, maybe women are doing something with our apologies. That is a strategy that's important for the community. And I said, yes. If I sit down beside you and I say, you may not agree with this, but it shows I'm not trying to convince you. I'm saying I exist, you exist, and we can talk later. But my aim is not the rhetorical aim of persuading you of my point of view. And I thought all of these apologies were actually... These women's ways of strengthening the fabric before it can be torn by rhetoric, which is violent. Rhetoric is the attempt to get somebody else to change their mind so it corresponds to your mind. Now, it'll always be on my hard drive to be irritated with women who can't stand at the podium and deliver the goods. But my alternative software suggested Maybe it's not that we can't stand at the podium and deliver the goods. Maybe it's that we can't stand the podium, the convention of being the dominator in the room. So I have both the hard drive working all the time and the alternative software. But it has been my greatest honors in life have been to learn from and and co-present with and speak with and be filmed with the people of color who have taught me the most. Brenda flies with hawks for many years. It's 28 years, has been um, co-director of the National Seed Project, which is my work with teachers. Brenda is a Cherokee woman whose first language was not English, and um, she has taught us so much about alternative ways of seeing beyond the competitive win versus lose. And in case you're wondering, Seed, prepares teachers K through 12 teachers to lead year-long seminars on their in their own schools on how first of all on their own stories including what am i teaching and why but uh, but in addition seed raises the question how can i help to make the curriculum the teaching methods and the whole school climate more inclusive so, that regardless of a child's background, all children will feel equally included. And this is um, spiritual work as well as intellectual work. But teachers say it changes their lives to hear about phase theory, to talk with each other about their stories, and to go not on their opinions but on their experiences. And an all-white group is a perfect learning opportunity because whites aren't all the same, even though some of the literature would have you think so. So if you have a group of 12 people in a seed seminar and all are white, just by using what we call serial testimony, telling parts of our stories in turn, and listening, we learn an enormous amount about how to make the
0: children in class all feel they belong. Peggy, I I feel like I want to listen to you for hours, (laughs) and I feel so reluctant because I'm going to have to end. I want to, I want to close with one last question, if I may, which is you wrote this seminal paper in 1988. It's now 26 years later. How would you say it's, it's most affected you personally, your life to have published this, given this voice, you know, how, how, has it, how has it impacted you personally? Being thanked to
1: such an extent it just amazes me. I get thanked by white people who say, I had never thought of any of that before. And when I read your paper, and many of them can remember where they were sitting when they, when they first read it, when I read your paper, it changed my life. And I get love letters about this. Mm. But from people of color, I get a different kind of thanks, which is profoundly moving to me also. And the main message is, thank you for making me know I'm not crazy. I knew there was something out there that was working against me as a person of color. I didn't know what it was. It wasn't... Outright discrimination. It was something that kept me from being able to become what I might become. Your paper put words to it and helped me not to feel crazy anymore. So I get a whole lot of hugs, figurative and literary literary (laughs) and, and physical. And it is amazing to me that in writing this thing I felt I should, that I was scared of in writing this thing that made me look less than self-sufficient and less than dominant. Um, I received so much love.
0: Peggy, I want to thank you myself. I remember exactly where I was when I read this your essay, which was in medical school, preparing to teach a class based on it. And um, you have opened my eyes so much uh, and named things I wasn't aware of at all, and I'm grateful to you as well. Um, I wanted, I want to know if someone wants to access, you know, we I, we looked online to try to find a link to your essay, and there's so many different links to it. What is the way that you most prefer someone to, to read it if they want to find it?
1: I've written six essays on, on privilege systems. I'd love it if people would email me And I'll send them all six and respond to anything they
0: want to say. That sounds great. What's your email address, Peggy? M, that's for Margaret,
1: and then M-C-I-N-T-O-S-H at Wellesley.edu. And Wellesley has three L's and three E's, W-E-L-L-E-S-L-E-Y.
0: Peggy McIntosh, thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space Radio.
1: I thank you very much, and thank you for keeping it a safe space for the people in Maine who are listening to you. Because you make it, your questions, which did not put me on the defensive or make me prove anything, are a beautiful portal into Safe Space.
0: Thank you. If you did not get a chance to listen to this whole interview and you'd like to, or you'd like to email the link to a friend, please go to our website, which is at safespaceradio.com. There you can subscribe to get a weekly email to that week's show. You can also download the show to your phone if you want to listen to it for your commute. You can send us a comment. We would love to get your feedback. And you can also like us on Facebook or listen to us through iTunes. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show and Jim Russell for being our consultant. Coming up next is Speak Freely.